today we're here with uh, Dr. Benjamin Hampstead from the uh, University of Michigan. Uh, Dr. Hampstead is our uh, Baird lecturer uh, for 2017. He gave an excellent lecture earlier, which is available on our podcast series. Uh, Dr. Hampstead, we um, have a rather granular look at your research through your lecture um, earlier. Uh, So let's take an opportunity to look at some issues related to your research. Can you speak a little bit uh, about your perspective on memory screening, um, the necessity of it, uh, how it's being utilized, and whether it's being utilized adequately? Sure. Well, first, I'd I'd really like to say thank you um, to everyone here at Kessler Foundation for uh, the invitation. Uh, It's been a wonderful experience so far, and I'm I'm looking forward to to getting a chance to hear more about the the really tremendous work that uh, everybody here is doing and and really trying to facilitate the cognitive and and functional uh, independence of of patients across a range of of disorders. So um, uh, it's been a lot of fun, and I I greatly appreciate the invitation. So, you know, turning on to your question, about memory screening, and I think that's a wonderful um, service, and it's wonderful that we have this national and even international attention to a very needed topic that, as we know, with uh, the aging population, not just in the United States, but worldwide, the baby boomers, um, so to speak, will certainly be reaching an age at which they're is likely to to be an increase in age and um, potentially medical condition or disease-related changes in in the brain. And so I think that the memory screenings play a very important role in helping us identify those who may be experiencing um, decline and and helping them uh, both directed to receive the appropriate clinical services, and um, and then also they can serve an important role in helping uh, individuals, depending on how they're done, helping individuals be reassured that there isn't an issue. Um, so I think those are some of the, the big benefits that I can see from the, the memory screen. A certain age at which perhaps memory screening should be included in an annual physical, for example. Yeah, so I think it it kind of comes down to where, um, you know, as we think about later in life, we we know that memory changes um, and that a lot of times memory gets blamed for things like us being too busy in our everyday life and not paying attention adequately. Because if if somebody's not paying attention to something, there's no way that you can uh, remember it. And so that would be like asking you how many times I've said the word um since our podcast started. Most people haven't been paying attention, and if we edit them out, that's a different story. But, you know, it's it's not that people can't count. It's that they're not paying attention to it. And so there's no way they can remember if they're not paying attention. And so memory screenings are important, but we also have to then take a step back and look at all of the other things that play into us being able to successfully form memories. And that's where I think that uh, depending, again, on how memory screenings are done, uh, hopefully we're able to, to give people a sense of where they have strengths, where there may be some weaknesses, and then what may be going on. Another thing we wanted to talk about was um, the, the title of your, ti- of your talk was Non-Pharmacologic Treatment of Memory Impairment in Older Adults, which raises the issue of uh, pharmacologic treatment. Uh, What do you see as the role of uh, this going forward, uh, perhaps in support or in combination with uh, cognitive uh, type interventions? Yeah, and that's a a great question that I think there's no doubt as we think about neurodegenerative diseases. I think the, the 
there's a lot of hope that some of the existing uh, trials uh, will ultimately find a, a disease modifying agent that will arrest the disease process. Um, and so those, there are a number of studies going on that, uh, you know, will hopefully bear fruit. I know that the, the field in general is a little bit frustrated at this point about the, the lack of uh, a silver bullet, so to speak, at this point, especially as we think about Alzheimer's disease. But it does look like there are some individuals who, who certainly may benefit from some of the existing approaches and a lot of, of great minds really working to develop new compounds. And so there's no doubt that the cure will come in the form of uh, a pharmacologic agent, a medication, uh, immunization, some other approach like that. So I think the non-pharmacologic approaches, as I see it, play two important roles. I think right now, until we find that cure, we're going to have continue to have a large number and a growing population of individuals suffering from uh, disease-related memory deficits. And so in the, the near term, I see the pharm- non-pharmacologic approaches that I spoke about this morning potentially really help, being a, a, a low-cost way of helping to maximize cognitive and uh, everyday functioning in those who uh, are symptomatic right now. In the longer term, I think even if there is a a, uh, 100% effective cure, I think there are going to be a lot of access problems that as a society we need to, to start discussing of how do we identify those is anyone above a certain age range going to uh, receive the medications. Um, and and so then what we may still be faced with is individuals who, once it becomes clear that there is a disease process going on, if they get that medication, they're likely to still have some cognitive problems. And so I think that there could be very nice synergistic interactions between uh, individuals once that medication is available, using it, and then us applying these non-pharmacologic approaches to help, again, maximize their functioning um, in the long term. Uh, Your research centers on aging uh, and Alzheimer's and the cognitive issues and declines associated with them. Uh, What about applications uh, for these non-pharmacologic approaches in other patient populations with memory deficits. Yeah, so it's uh, clear. I know folks at Kessler Foundation are doing a lot of great work with uh, non-pharmacologic approaches, whether it's cognitive rehabilitation, whether it's different takes on the the memory strategies that I talked about earlier today. And so uh, there's a lot of very encouraging and very exciting evidence uh, in the application of these techniques to traumatic brain injury, to stroke, to MS. I think where I could see, uh, you know, my my work with older adults, um, both cognitively intact and those with presumed Alzheimer's disease, really coming into play is that everybody is aging. And that's one factor that that spans all the conditions that we talked about that I know Kessler Foundation is really uh, playing a leading role in, but everybody is going to age. And just because somebody may have experienced a TBI doesn't mean that they're suddenly immune from a neurodegenerative disease. And so I think that's where um, if we can get our respective fields talking more, we can really think about the long-term care of those aging with traumatic brain injury or aging with MS and really uh, develop a more comprehensive plan to uh, maximize their functioning in the long term. Sounds like some people are going to be busy writing grant applications on some of these new avenues. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) Perhaps some collaboration in the future. Exactly. Uh, Is there anything else you'd like to add um, 
about your research and the field? You know, I think one of the things that I keep coming back to, and I know I talked about it this morning, is is the fact that um, these are relatively low cost and uh, low effort ways of uh, where we may help patients benefit. Um, I think one of the the challenges is as we think about the research that needs to be done to justify the translation of these approaches into the clinic, we're confronted with problems where a lot of funding agencies, um, it may not fit in their portfolio, whether it's because it's going to be hard to do a traditional randomized control trial to show the efficacy, especially if we're interested in some of that heterogeneity that I talked about, where the the benefits may be there for some people, but not for others. And really understanding that may not necessarily uh, sell as well as the traditional RCT, where we we generally tend to expect that anybody with a given diagnosis is um, okay, but there's a lot of variability within any diagnosis, whether it's TBI, whether it's MS, whether it's uh, MCI, as I talked about earlier. And so if we really want to do the the trick of, of more of the precision medicine approach, I think that we're going to have to, to take a step back and have a combination of traditional funding mechanisms, um, foundation support, and, um, you know, probably philanthropy um, will be big and in, in piecing this together so that we can, uh, again, look at those individual factors and and help develop more refined and specific um, interventions for our our participants and patients. Thank you so much, Dr. Hampstead, for uh, visiting with Kessel Foundation today and providing such an interesting perspective on uh, memory research today. Well, thanks so much for having me. To learn more about our scientists and the research of Kessler Foundation, go to www.kesslerfoundation.org. That's www.kesslerfoundation.org.